let's look to the screen and begin our service as we customarily do with the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We have begun a new series marked by our graphic here behind me, this present time. Uh, I want to remind you that in your bulletin, we gave you uh, kind of a refrigerator half sheet uh, that gives us our scripture. Uh, for I reckon or I am persuaded or I understand that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. I give you that and a quote from um, Max Lucado, but I, I think the quote is essential for us to get through this present time. But I also want you to know this study is not just about getting through difficult times. It's not just about going through hard times. It's about the victory that we have and the results that we have. It's not going to be a descent into misery, not at all, but it is a mountain and valley experience. And we did a little introduction to the drawing close uh, of the Lord dynamic last week. Today, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the outline, which was originally the preface um, of, this, uh, of this series. Um, it's about a biblical worldview, and I want you to know that what you believe does make a difference. What you believe does make a difference. In the past 20, 25 years, um, church growth experts have said the churches that are growing don't emphasize doctrine. And I know what they're saying, but that is a tragic misrepresentation. Churches don't flourish that don't teach doctrine. Uh, when you read the explanation, what they're saying is a church that makes issues out of doctrines to the point of not fellowshipping with others, that sort of thing. They're the ones that are having problems. Others are open uh, to fellowshipping Christians that may have different uh, views on, on certain perspectives, but the churches that God is, are, is blessing are churches that have agreed on some core doctrines, some core issues. There are five points of the gospel that if you don't believe, I'm not sure that you're a Christian at all. Um, we've talked about that, the, the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection from the dead, the ascension back to the right hand of the Father. All of those things are pivotal points of the gospel that when you try to explain those things away, the mystery of the gospel is explained away. But at the same time, we know that we emphasize those core doctrines, but we love people at the same time. And we understand that we're all on a journey and we're all being worked on and we make room for each other. That's what we talked about last week. If you didn't uh, get to be here, it would be good for you to go online, take a look at it. Um, but where we were going is this idea of a world view, a world view. 
To have a biblical worldview means that there are things that you believe that are irreducible and non-negotiable. Um, irreducible and non-negotiable. We don't make uh, biblical doctrine out of, well, I believe in, you know, a pre-trib rapture or mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, uh, or those kind of things where there are differing views. When we talk about a biblical worldview and core values, we are saying there are things that are irreducible in Scripture, the deity of Jesus. You can't say he was half man and half God. You can't say he had God-like moments. It's irreducible and it's non-negotiable. We, we cannot negotiate on things like the, the, um, the deity of Jesus or the efficacy of his blood. You might be surprised at how many times through the years people have wanted to join us in membership, you know, church membership. And when we get right down to that member interview or the membership classes, they say, well, I'm not sure I believe that Jesus is the only way, or I'm not sure that I believe Jesus is really divine. I just think he was the best teacher that ever lived. And we explain to them, we, we can't walk in agreement with you on those points. There are things that are core value. There are things that are worth dying for. And they are also things that are worth living for. I have in my study at home uh, a pelt of an ermine. Now you say, what is an ermine? Well, it's a, it's a little animal. It's, it's in a lot of places in the United States. It's, uh, it's a, a, an adult is about this long and weighs less than half a pound. Uh, it's basically a very tall mouse is what it looks like. In fact, that's what its name means and um, from the French. And I was in um, the Rocky Mountains in a little mountain man shop, and this is where I bought this pelt. I thought it was beautiful. There were so many pelts I would have loved to have bought, but this, this one was small enough it was in my range. And I started asking the guy about it. I, 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 I did not know what an ermine was at the time. And he showed me a picture and explained to me they're carnivores and they have an amazing ability to go down into the snow and they will invade any animal's burrow. And they'll go into that burrow and kill the animal and that's how they survive. If you live in the higher elevations like Rocky Mountains, um, the ermine that might be brown or even black during the warm season turns totally white during the winter season so that he blends in with the snow. Uh, there is usually a little, just a little speck of black on the tail. But other than that, he is totally white. He survives because of his white coat. He lives in the snow and avoids capture and captures his prey because he has a coat that is his defense, it's his very lifeline. And I looked at that pelt, I've, I've still got it. Uh, uh, I, I got it back in the 80s. Um, my wife and one of my daughters, I think it, well, I better not tell who it was, but um, at least one of my daughters has walked into a room where I had the ermine and screamed. Thought that, uh, thought that the, the mother of all mice had come into the house. But it's just the pelt. and. Uh, I still got it. I keep it uh, usually on a shelf or sometimes on my desk to remind me of a lesson I learned in that mountain man shop. 
And basically, I said, this thing is so tiny. I said, don't you run the risk of tearing the pelt and doing all this kind of stuff, using traps? And if you watch Mountain Man, you know, Tom Orr, those guys, they still use traps. But you have to be very careful. It has to be the right kind of trap. He said, yeah. He said, a, a typical trap can just tear it apart. He said, and so you have to have a special trap. But he said, I'll tell you the way that they did it in the old days, the mountain man days. And uh, I, you know, I, I didn't know if I was, I'd already committed to buying the pelt, so I didn't think he was trying to spend a yarn to get me to buy it. He said, um, when this thing turns white and he's living in the snow, his existence depends on his coat being pure white. And he said what the old mountain men found out is that the ermine was, would not go through mud. The ermine would, um, uh, if he killed an animal and got blood on its mouth or its head, he would spend a lo however long it took to get that clean before he would leave the kill site uh, because his existence depended on him being pure white. Now, what the old mountain men learned is that they would go into an area, it usually took a team of, uh, of at least a couple of them, but they would go into an area, they would, they would watch where the ermine went and um, the holes he went into, and then they would take some kind of pitch uh, or tar, we would call it, and they would coat the opening of his uh, burrow with that sticky pitch and tar. And usually it was black or, or dark brown. And what they learned is that when the ermine would get close, I mean, he was outpacing them. They're very fast and would go into his burrow. When he got there, he, he, from the smell, and God gave him an instinct to understand this is something very sticky, very dirty. It's going to defile his coat. And he would not, the closer the hunters got, he would not go through that tar because he would not defile his coat. He knew that he might escape that moment, but he was going to perish next time he went out. And experience had taught, maybe some instinct, that this wasn't coming off. It wasn't going to wipe off like blood. And they said this little thing, it, 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 he looks like a ferret kind, a little smaller than a ferret. And um, what this little ermine would do they said it was an amazing thing. He's small, he's frail, he, he's so light that if he was on your shoulder, you wouldn't even know he was there from the weight. They said, this little guy will turn and stand on his hind legs and raise his little claws. And he said, he'll do this with a grizzly bear. He'll do this with a man. He'll do it with a, 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 a bobcat or whatever it is. He goes up and he will take on the adversary that he has no chance to defeat because that's how important his purity is. Now I thought there in the Rocky Mountains, I said, I just got me a sermon. <laughs> I even brought it in here a few years ago and, and, and showed it to you. But um, the point I'm trying to make, I know every illustration breaks down. Uh, the ermine the was not fighting for spiritual purity, but the ermine understood that there are some things worth dying for. There are some things worth standing for. There are some things that are not worth compromise. When you go to Revelation 12, 
And the scripture talks about those that overcame the enemy. It says they overcame him, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony or the depth of their belief, and by not loving their lives unto death. It's kind of chunky and bulky in English. But basically what it says is this. They, they, were, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not view death as something to be avoided at any cost. They were willing to die for what they believed was right. Now, this is not a message today about martyrdom. It's not a message about anything like that. It's the idea that I want you to understand that goes along with having a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is not just an opinion about something in the Bible or a general statement that says, well, yeah, I believe the Bible is true. A biblical worldview says that you have a commitment to the scripture that is so powerful, it affects the way you live. The, thought, the thoughts that you think, your priorities and your goals. You see there in your notes, what is a worldview? The belief that my life is built upon. These beliefs shape my actions, my priorities and goals. Worldview and a biblical worldview in particular is so important that it's part of the mission of our church, part of the very reason that we exist. It says, the mission of the Christian life family is to create environments in which people encounter God, resulting in purpose-filled lives based on a biblical worldview. We, we cannot do everything. We cannot be everything. We cannot involve ourselves in every good and Bible-based program. You can't do that. Every church has to hear from God on what they can do and what they can't do. And we shouldn't be judged and we shouldn't judge others if we do this and this church doesn't, or we do that ministry and that church doesn't. Every church has to give account to the Lord for what they do. But what we believe every church ought to do is create environments so that you can encounter God and it will result in a life that is changed. And the change is basically us embracing a biblical world view. Now, um, there's a passage in scripture that um, I, I want you to just kind of wrap your head around for a minute with me. The scripture says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now that's King James, and I grew up on King James, so I still find myself running to it from time to time, even though there's some other great translations. Um, but I grew up with that, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I think a lot of people hijacked that verse to mean if you have positive thoughts, you'll have a positive life. I know a lot of people with positive thoughts that don't have a positive life. It's, it's not a verse saying, if you can get the right thoughts, everything will be in order in your life. You could make a case for that in a very broad and general sense. But I like this translation uh, of that verse, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Listen to this. What a person really is has emerged because of how that person processes life. Let's put a name to it. Let's, let's use Angela. 
Okay? What Angela really is, really what Angela is, is something that has emerged because of how she processes life. A worldview is what you cling to. A worldview is what you are not willing to let get soiled. A worldview is something that will make you turn and fight a grizzly bear because it has so captivated your life. The very way you process life, the way you process a doctor's report, the way you process a tax return, the way you process a problem or animosity or difficulty in relationships, the way you process everything in life, the way you process it is what forms your life view. And I believe that's what the Bible means when it says, as a man thinks in his heart or a person, so is he, so is he. Now, what are some typical worldviews? Let's, let's go over just a few. I, you could probably name eight, maybe 10 worldviews that are, that are on in and of themselves, but there's no point in trying to get that technical. Let me give you some typical worldviews that we find in the world. And sometimes we find it in the church. Sometimes we find it on the church. We're going to find out later, Jesus said, you need to be on guard against these kinds of things. Uh, number one um, is materialism. Some worldviews can be called materialism. He said in Luke 12, this is the verse I was talking about. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, I preached a message one time uh, in a youth conference about greed and a couple of kids came up to me and said, I, we're, we're not greedy, we're, we're a poor family, we don't have anything. But from some of the things they had said, I knew they were eaten up with greed. And I said, you need to understand, Greed is not the same as riches. Riches can be good riches. Riches can be bad riches. I said, but you can be as poor as Job's turkey, if you've never heard that translation. You can be as poor as Job's turkey, not have anything, and still be bound by greed. Because greed doesn't just say, I've got everything that I need. You know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on my own here and I'm self-sufficient. Sometimes greed is found in the most poor, of poorest of people because there's nothing they would, or there's little they wouldn't do in order to get money. Greed is not the product of having money. Greed is the product of wanting money in a disproportionate way. And Jesus said, be on your guard. That's why he said against all kinds of greed. Some greed, you know, it was said that uh, John D. Rockefeller was asked how much is enough. He was the richest man in the world at the time. And this is what he said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Um, some people say, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. Some people hate people that are better off than them. That's greed. It's not that we need a redistribution of wealth. We need to get rid of greed. We need to get rid of bitterness and hatred because greed can come in, you know, you can kick it out the front door, and if you're not careful, greed will run, run around and come in the basement. 
So he said, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What you have does not make you rich. And what you don't have does not make you poor. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Because some people, their whole system of living is wrapped up in materialism. The pursuit of things. Now, there's nothing wrong with things. You know, the, the well, let's go on. The second t- uh, worldview that we need to be aware of is a worldview called narcissism. Um, narcissism, a, a narcissist is a person that above everybody else thinks of themselves. Thinks of themselves first and foremost. It doesn't mean they're devoid of goodness or they're devoid of loving someone. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, their interests are going to be put first. That's a narcissist. And Matthew uh, 16 tells us the words of Jesus that said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Jesus said, if you live under the curse of narcissism, where you think everything you've got to take care of yourself above all, he said, you're going to end up losing the very thing you're trying to save. But if you will become a giver of of love, of time, of talent, of treasure, you will be the kind of person that realizes though you're giving, it's coming right back to you. Then there's a worldview of of hedonism uh, or just paganism, just carnality. Um, the, a life lived by the dictates of the flesh. Proverbs 21, 17, he who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. Now, was the wise man saying you can never have things? Of course not. Uh, because there are other Proverbs that talk about these things being a sign of the blessing of the Lord. What we learn is that Some people can handle things and treat them as a blessing from the Lord and keep them in their proper perspective. Um, And some people that live under the blessing of the Lord understand that no matter how much people do you wrong, you can still prosper. You can still be blessed. I think of the, the Living Bible when it was describing the plight of the mothers and fathers of, in Israel when they were captive in Egypt. It says that they put them to slavery. They put them to, to horrendous work conditions. Um, they killed their baby boys. And it, it was the worst possible scenario for a society to, to be living in. But this is what the, King James, or the uh, Living Bible said about it. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. We've got to understand, as we talked about last week, the, the, the mathematics of the kingdom do not match the mathematics of this world. Um, and, we, and if we decide that it's all about pleasure, we will have almost no pleasure. If we think it's about riches, we'll find out that we have no riches. And God doesn't mind us having riches. God doesn't mind us having pleasure. God doesn't mind us having wine and oil. God doesn't mind us having things, but we must always keep those things in the proper place. Okay, another world uh, view is pragmatism. 
Now, pragmatism, depending on how you use it, can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. But what pragmatism means is that you know, a pragmatist is a person that says, I only involve myself in what works. If this doesn't work, I'm not even going to try. If this doesn't have a proven track record, I'm not even going to try it. Now, that might be good in making some decisions, but you've got to understand, again, a biblical worldview is there are going to be times things don't work, but you pursue it because there's the law of sowing and reaping. There's the promise of God through the Apostle Paul. He said, we, uh, you know, uh, don't be weary of sowing and reaping. Don't be weary in well-doing because you will harvest if you don't give up. Uh, there's always the don't give up. There's always the don't give up. They, they, um, uh, uh, my mind wants to say so much, but... I better not trust it right now. Um, let me say this about pragmatism. It's, it's nothing bad. It's just I'm, I, so many examples I want to give. Pragmatism says if it doesn't work, I'm not going to do it. And if it works, the end justifies the means. We need to remember there's never a right way to do a wrong thing. God does not need us to cheat in order for us to get the kingdom work done. Um, what Proverbs 14, 12 says is that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that in the world's mind is okay to do. Um, preachers do this a lot. They manipulate with sob stories. Uh, I wrote a letter to a nationally known evangelist one time, and, and I, said, I said, brother, you don't know me. I am nobody. Um, I, I am pastor of a small church but I've supported your ministry for years. And I said, I have been praying and fasting and I want to tell you this. And I'd marked it personal and confidential, hoping it only got to him. I said, but the Lord, I believe, put this on my heart. I, I, I said, I believe in you. I, I want to, I support you. I want to continue to support you. But I believe that you are manipulating people. You're creating stories. You're creating, uh, thus saith the Lord, you're, you're shaming us into not giving everything we have to you. And I said, I believe as, as, as purely as I can write this, I said, I believe that God is giving you a warning. In fact, what I believe he's spoken to me is that you're getting letters from other people saying the same thing. Some of them from anonymous people like me, some of them from people that you know and respect. But I said, if you keep trying to manipulate people, if you keep creating stories, if you keep telling half-truths, then I want to tell you God's hand is going to lift off of you. And like Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be put aside for a time until you come to your senses. And I don't want to see that happen. And I, w I was as gracious as I could be. And you say, well, I bet he never even saw that. I don't know, but somebody signed his name to a letter. And he, he spent like a page and a half explaining to me that people need to be motivated and people need to have a cause. And when he said all that, what it boiled down to is I'd rather stretch the truth to get people to move than to, than to not stretch the truth and have them do nothing. And I, I, I didn't answer his letter. He, his decision was made. And it wasn't maybe more than 18 months. His ministry evaporated. He was exposed for the very things that 
um, I, I was concerned about. And he, I, I've kept that letter for a while. Then I, then I threw it away because I didn't want to, I, I, I didn't want to hold anything against him. And I, I, I realized that scripture, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And a lot of times the difficulties and the circumstances of life make us think it's okay to try something. It may not be totally right, but the end justifies the means. And loved ones, if we're not careful, we will talk ourselves into a posture. We'll talk ourselves into an action. I've killed you, haven't I? You've gotten totally quiet. I've destroyed this service. Well, let me, let me see if I can manipulate you back into... You know. Loved ones, sometimes things are just, well, let me just do this. Let me just do this. And we're like Saul, King Saul. He's under instructions from Samuel to destroy, uh, who was it, the, the Amalekites and all of their cattle. He's in, under instructions to destroy them. And he doesn't destroy the king. He doesn't destroy the cattle. Why? Because I know the way this works. We're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And I need to save the best of their cattle to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And when Samuel showed up, he said, what is going on here? The, the, the sheep and the oxen as I hear, uh, that I hear, they're supposed to be slaughtered in obedience to the Lord. And he explained, well, there's a good reason for this. But again, Samuel was going to explain there's never a right way to do a wrong thing. And this is what Samuel the prophet said to the mighty king of Israel. He said, is sacrifice as important as obedience? Is getting this project done as important as the word of the Lord? Does the fat of the lamb mean more to God than the purity of heart? And it was at that moment that the kingdom was taken away from Saul. Loved ones, we need to understand that one of the things that can be so damaging to us, yeah, we don't want to get in materialism, we don't want to get in narcissism, we don't want to get in, in um, hedonism, but we don't want to get in pragmatism either. Because sometimes... Uh, there, is, uh, there, is, there is always a solution to a problem. And usually it's very easy, very attainable, and very wrong. And God in his magnificent wisdom often puts us in a place where we have options. You say, oh, I'd never do that. Real Christians don't do that. Abraham, I was just thinking... We know that God promised us a son. I own this slave girl. And by the law of the land, if you father a child with her, the child is mine. So there's never a wrong way to do a right thing. So um, uh, uh, why don't you go into her and let's have a baby and that baby will be mine. And I want to tell you, um, it reminds me of a cartoon I saw. Ishmael's the father of the Arab communities, Isaac of the Jewish communities. And it's a cartoon I saw in a magazine. It's Abraham sitting at a fire with one of his friends. And his friend says, don't worry about it, Abraham. Ishmael's descendants and Isaac's descendants will probably never run into each other. You know? <laughs> There's a way that seems right. 
but in the end, it results in death. And that was not an anti-Jewish or anti-Arab uh, um, statement. That's just an observation. Um, but pragmatism, we need to understand that we must not allow our Christianity to be twisted by the world's views. We need a biblical worldview. Uh, number two on your outline, as Christians, we are called to develop and live out a worldview with its roots in the teachings of the Bible. There's nothing wrong with logic. There's nothing wrong with science. There's nothing wrong with this philosoph uh, philosophical view or this political view necessarily. I mean, those, those views are not in and of themselves evil. It depends on what they are. But you've got to understand, the Bible is not like a slice of our life. And you also got to understand, the Bible is, is not the opposite. Faith is not the opposite of logic. Um, faith is not the opposite of philosophy. Um, I, I don't think our scientists understand this well. I don't think our people of science understand it well. They view this thing, a lot of them, view this thing, and we certainly have exceptions to that here in our own church, as, well, it's hard for me to believe what I can't see, but science, I can see. Well, you can see some science, but science changes pretty regularly through the years. But what we've got to understand is that the, it's not the Bible versus this or the Bible versus this. It's all of this stuff, all of which has some value to it, and the Bible transcends all of that. It transcends all of it. I believe by the time the kingdom is set up and Jesus comes, Every good thing in science will be reconciled with, with Scripture. I believe every good thing in philosophy will be vindicated by Scripture. But we don't take the wisdom of this world to pollute a biblical worldview. We've got to be, we've got to be careful. How important are our beliefs? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because we needed to get off of that other stuff. Um, two things primarily... My worldview shapes my life. You are, you are what you are because of the facts that you use to process life. It, it shapes my life. A person that believes that God is the creator values life very, very intensely. They're kind to animals. They, they want to hug a few trees along the way. But they also understand the value of human life. And they understand from the biblical perspective that human life is the apex of God's creation. When you understand a biblical worldview, you value all life. And that's why abortion never enters the discussion of your possibilities. That's why euthanasia never enter, uh, of, of the elderly it never, it never enters the realm because of the way you value life. But if you don't believe that God created life, if you don't believe that man is special and the apex of God's creation, then life is not valuable, at least as not as valuable as it ought to be. And we need to understand, loved ones, that... Um, the problems that we have in America, the problems we have around the world, we can make it very shallow in understanding or we can try to attain to lofty goals up here. But what we've got is that people don't understand that the things I bring into my life cause me to process all information. 
Oh, you're getting tense again. Let's move on. But my worldview shapes my life. Listen to Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. You remember that verse we quoted a few minutes ago? It's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof, the ways of death. That's one of the only Proverbs that's given twice. And the context of Proverbs was for a father to teach his children wisdom. And that was so important. That was so important that it got mentioned twice. And no, the father wasn't having early dementia where he forgot what he had said. He said, this is so important. And then as he moved through other issues, he said, I need to go back to something that is so important. There's a way that you can justify, but the question is, what does it, how does it stand before the word of God? The second thing I want you to remember is that my worldview determines the level of blessing in my life. Now that does not mean that if you have a wrong political view, you can't go to heaven. It doesn't mean if you have a wrong philosophical view, you can't go to heaven. It doesn't mean if you have a wrong theological view about issue A, B, or C that you can't go to heaven. Um, uh, that's not what it, what it means when I say my worldview determines the blessing in my life. It goes to the idea that we've said about um, devotional life. Uh, I, I guess pastors never should say this, especially on live stream, but you can go to heaven if you never develop a devotional life. I mean, you ought to, but you don't go to heaven because of your devotional life. You go to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ and you accepting him as savior. But I, I have said this and I continue to say it. The degree of your devotional life is the degree of your joy and the degree of your devotional life and associated works will affect your reward. It'll affect your reward, but you're still going to heaven. A worldview, uh, as long as you have central truths intact, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He's the forgiver of my sins and so forth. As long as you have that intact, you're going to heaven. But if you have a biblical worldview, if you treat the Bible with the honor it deserves, if you treat the Bible with the reverence and respect it deserves, it's going to open the door for blessing. You know, blessed is the man that does not walk in the way of the ungodly, he does not sit or, or stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Uh, he, he shall be like a tree that's planted by rivers of living water. His leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the congregation of the righteous or during the judgment of the Lord, but the way of the righteous endures forever. And you, you recognize that as Psalm 1. We read it in so many different versions. But there's a difference between the way we honor the word and the way we don't. Uh, walk. As you walk along the way, Deuteronomy says, teach the law to your children. Let it be written on the doorposts of your home, on the walls of your home. Tie it about your arms, those phylacteries or portions of scripture. The scripture makes it clear, the way we treat the word of God 
often determines our level of blessing. Well, but not our salvation. And I do need to say this before we try to wrap this up here. Sincerity alone cannot justify our lifestyle. There's a buzzword in society today. I don't think I've said this this service. Um, the, the, you know, your truth, my truth. Everyone has a truth, and whatever your truth is, it gives you the right to live life from a certain perspective. But loved ones, it's not about your truth. It's not about my truth. The Bible says in, when there is no vision or there's no divine revelation, the people perish or the people are unrestrained, but happy are those who love the law of the Lord. We are designed that if we say there's no absolute law, there's no absolute rule, there's no absolute standard, we are opening the door for utter and complete chaos. I laughed one day. I was, I, I, it wasn't funny. It was, it was, it was ludicrous, but a, a, a well-known television personality said, oh, there's a, she said, I know a lot of Christians that say the Bible is the only way and that it has to be absolute truth. She said, there is no absolute truth. She said, in fact, I know if one thing is absolutely true, there is no absolute truth. And I thought, sweetheart, you don't know. You just said that there is an absolute truth and it's that there is no absolute truth. Now, we, we, have to, we, we are created to have an absolute rule in our lives, an absolute truth. Now, I know a lot of Christians can misinterpret Scripture. They can misapply Scripture. So when we have so many denominations, not, none of us get it all right. But, um, and, and, I'm, and I, I, one of the most distasteful things you can find is a church that says nobody has got it right except us. That's one of the most distasteful Christ dishonoring things I know. But we are all, if we're true Christians, we're on a quest for the fullness of truth. The fullness, not that the Bible is something that needs to be overcome, but, but we need to search out the truth. Uh, and it's not a matter of just sincerity alone. alone. Now, uh, let's hurry. What are the initial steps to establishing a biblical worldview? Uh, again, these are so simple, I just need to read them for you. Number one, fill your life with God's truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Old Testament says, buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom, discipline, and understanding. Loved ones, we have got to begin to value the word of God the way it was meant to be valued. David said, I've esteemed the word of God more necessary than my daily food. You know, I said one time, we, we, ought, to, we ought to be just as regular in the word as we are in brushing our teeth. And somebody said, well, you know, that's not good preaching. If we don't brush our teeth, we'll have cavities. And I, I, I thought, what? at what point did you wake up during that sentence? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't brush our teeth, but I'm saying just as normally, and there are variations, but normally we realize we need to brush our teeth at least a couple of times a day. And we wouldn't think of going for days and days without brushing our teeth, or I hope we wouldn't. All, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with brushing your teeth, but I'm saying if we think brushing our teeth is important enough that we'll get up even when we're sleepy and go to the bathroom, how much more so should we pay the price to have a devotional life and be in the Word of God? Number two, develop a discernment that exposes what is false. Loved ones, that's the problem with being on 
milk instead of meat. Um, you know, a lot of times we think of milk as being easy stuff or shallow stuff. I don't know of anything that God shares with us that is easy or shallow. But I tell you what I think the distinction is, milk and meat, milk is previously digested food. You know, when a mom holds that baby to her breast and the baby suckles and gets nourishment from the mom, he or she is able to get nourishment from mother's breast because mom has, has digested some food and has turned into milk. Um, milk is not bad. What I think the, the word says when it says you've had to be fed with milk instead of meat. See, meat is a primary intake. Milk is secondary. Um, now, I'm, I, you say, well, we, sh we, I, we shouldn't even be on milk. The American Medical Association <laughs> says that we're the only species that drinks milk after we're grown. You know what I say? We're the only species that's gone to the moon, too. Maybe it's because of the milk. <laughs> but I think what's behind this idea of you need to get on milk and, and not meat, or uh, meat and not milk, milk is not bad. God promised Israel he's going to take him to the land of milk and honey. I'm, I'm, I'm a milk guy, you know. Uh, I, I think milk is, is utterly delicious. I really do. But um, I think in our growth, there, there needs to come a time where we stop depending on somebody else to take us into the things of God. Now, he gives us pastors and teachers. Pastors are to guide, to lead, feed, and protect Teachers are to take the things of God and make it digestible for us. But loved ones, I know some people are so messed up because, well, I don't believe that because brother so-and-so doesn't believe it. Or I, I didn't believe that either, but now sister so-and-so is teaching it on the internet. And I thank God for every good teaching on television and the internet. But loved ones, we, we are plagued by people that are fat babies because all they do is drink milk. They never take hard questions to the Lord. They never do research on their own. And um, we need to fill our life not only with God's word, but we need to develop a discernment that exposes what is false. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, I remember Adrian Rogers telling about a missionary friend of his. He was a missionary on an, um, an Indian reservation. And there was a tribal leader that had been one to the Lord. And the, the missionary was helping him get rooted and grounded in, in the faith. And, and um, there, there, were so, there, there are so many issues on our Native American reservations. There, we, we have so many levels of injustice through the years. And we're trying to work through these things. And... And, and, and redeem, I, and, and I understand that. But he said part of the path to victory and blessing for this group of people is to really strengthen their tribal leader. So he took him to uh, a, a city, a big city. Um, they went uh, on, by bus to, I think it was uh, somewhere in California, and they were attending a young believers uh, convention. 
It was a place where you learned to really grow in the Lord. And the missionary said, as we stepped off the bus, he said, um, there was somebody standing there on the corner with a Bible in his hand preaching, and he was preaching absolute heresy. And he said, I thought, oh, great. I brought this man to get strengthened in the Lord. And the first thing he runs into is, is, a, is a false prophet. He said, I started to grab him and say, let's go. But I was afraid he would think uh, I'm the only one with truth. You can't listen to anybody else but me. He said, Holy Spirit, you've got to help me. And the Holy Spirit told him just to relax, just to stand there and relax. And he stood there and watched the, the, the tribal leader listen. The tribal leader said, can we listen for a few minutes? And he said, yeah, he didn't want to, but he said, yeah, and they listened. And then the tribal leader said, I'm ready to go now. And they went off and the missionary didn't know how to approach it. He said, what did you think? He said, well, I was excited when I first heard him. He was holding the Bible and he said some good things. But as he went on, the inner spirit that you teach us about began to speak to me. And he said, what did he say? He said, only one word, but he said it over and over again. He said, what was that one word? He said, as this man taught, even from the Bible, that voice of the Spirit said, liar, 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 liar. And he said, when I heard liar enough, I figured he was a liar. And <laughs> you see, that's what the Bible says in John, where it says, you don't have any need that any man teach you. A lot of rebe uh, rebels have used that to not be under any administration or be under any spiritual leadership. John said, you don't have any need that anyone teach you. But the same John talked about God giving us teachers. Is that a conflict? No. You've got to understand there was a, a rise of Gnosticism going on at the end of the first century of Christianity. And the Gnostics divided Christians into those that were uh, uh, spiritual. They called them the pneumaticoi. They're the spiritual ones. But if you were soulish or weak, you were sukakoi. You were soulish or even fleshly. And the, the, the pneumaticoi were teachers. And if Justin disagreed with me on something, if I was one of these teachers, I'd say, you just don't have the light yet. You just don't have insight. You don't know what I know. And John was saying, do not give heed to somebody that would teach that way. Do not give heed to somebody that claims to have a superior light because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and he will lead you into all truth. Now, loved ones, I believe in, in, in pastors. I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful, they're handsome. <laughs> you know, I believe in pastors and I believe that everyone needs a pastor. I believe I need a pastor. I, I believe we all need pastors, but a pastor is to lead you down a path so that you can walk on your own. And we need to be careful. It's not spiritual to say, I need no direction in my life. But I also want to say this, we need to be careful because not every voice is a voice from heaven. Not every teacher is a teacher of legitimacy. I encourage you to do like the Bereans did that were found to be more noble than people that were around them because they checked to see if what they were taught was in the word. 
Fill your life with God's truth. Develop a discernment that exposes what's false and embrace the process of a transformed life. Loved ones, it is a process. It takes time and you're going to have victories and you're going to have some failures. You're going to have some, uh, some spills that you got to clean up. And sometimes it's just going to seem like there's more error than there is truth. I remember one time when all of our kids were, only Jeremy was in school. Everybody else was, was, a, was a preschooler. And we were sitting at the table. We had been here just maybe a year, year and a half. And it was, it was you know, it's like trying to herd cats sometimes. We, we believed in having a family dinner, and it was important for us to have that. And one of the kids um, reached for something and knocked their glass of drink over. Okay, that happens, no big deal. Her big brother tried to grab her glass to keep it from falling and knocked his glass over. <laughs> Something happened, the other glass got jostled, so I just looked and I thought, I just took my glass and poured it out, you know. <laughs> I figured if we, let's just go all the way. And the kids thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. You need to pray for my wife. She, <laughs> sometimes her sense of humor is really lacking. But you know, sometimes it just feels like that. It's like, look, everything's getting turned on. Let me, let me just pour mine out too. But most days it's fine. Most days the glasses get emptied in the right way. And I want to tell you, um, this thing called sanctification, this thing of growing into the image of Christ, it is something that takes time. That's why Paul said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 16, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and be innocent about what is evil. Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He said, I want you to be wise about doing good. Innocent, I want you to be dumb as a brick. I remember when I was a youth pastor, there was a teaching from somebody in our youth group that didn't belong there. Uh, she was older. She didn't have any business being in with the youth. And she had been through a couple of marriages and she began to teach her small group that God wants you to be the best you can be. And if you are a virgin, you are so naive. Young people, I want you to listen to this. You don't know how to make love well if you are not a virgin. I mean, if you are a virgin and you've had no experience. So I think it's the wisdom of the Lord for you to sleep around so that you become the gift to your future bride or future husband that you were meant to be. And loved ones, I, 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 I want to tell you, she said, you're naive if you're a virgin. And I, I did a two-part series and a lot of counseling. I said, purity is not naivete. Now, I want to tell you, it's probable that your honeymoon night is not going to be the best sex of your life. Don't look at me with judgment. I'm just, I, I'm so close to Corey taking over, I'll just slap you and move on. 
But there are few things as beautiful as learning intimacy with your wife, your husband. It's a gift of God. It's not naivety that needs to be looked down on. There's never a right way to do a wrong thing. And we need to realize that everything worthwhile takes time and it takes growing. Um, he, he says, I want you to be in, uh, wise about what is good. Be innocent about what is evil. Why? Because the God of peace is about to crush Satan under your feet. Don't cave in to the reports that say he's winning. Don't cave in to the idea that your life is not coming together. God has this thing and just, ah, timing, timing. How, how, how many times have I tried to help him with his sense of timing? But he knows what he's doing. And if you can just be excellent in what is right, be innocent in evil, God will crush the enemy under your feet. Okay, and here's the last thing. Commit your life to the establishing of God's kingdom. Commit your life to the establishing of God's kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Loved ones, I, I want to tell you to be on the lookout for three things, and, and then we're done. Um, it's, it takes time, but you say, well, how do I know if I'm making any progress? Well, you, there's some things you look for. Uh, and they all start with the letter R. Be easy for you to remember. Here's number one. As you're developing a biblical worldview, expect to have revelation. See that verse that says where there's no vision, the people perish. Again, better translation is where there's no divine revelation, the people are unrestrained. Lives are crazy without divine revelation. And... Um, Expect the Lord to give you revelation. Expect, that won't happen every time you open the Bible. But expect God to speak to you. Expect God to show you new things in his word. I was reading through Isaiah the other day and I saw something. And I, every year I try to read through the Bible in a different version. Just to keep my mind fresh. And um, I read something. I said, that's, that ain't, that's not in the Bible. I mean, I, I've read it, I've read the book of Isaiah, I don't know, dozens of times, and I've never read this. I said, that's not there. That's, this is a poor translation. So I went and I looked it up in about a half dozen other translations that I was more familiar with, and it was there! <laughs> I don't, hey, I'm a grandpa, and that was the first time I saw that verse well, it wasn't the first time I saw it, but it was the first time I saw it. So expect revelation. The Spirit is the one that will lead you into all truth. Okay, so am I getting revelation from the Lord? Now again, it's not going to happen every time. And everybody is different. All of us are wired differently. Some of us, it's easy to hear in the, in the spiritual some of us, it's not easy to hear. It doesn't mean one is more spiritual than the other. We're all wired differently. And, and whatever is best for us, we lean into that. That's okay. 
uh, but expect revelation. Number two, take it upon yourself. When I receive revelation, I need to reflect. I need to write that down. I need to mark it down and I need to reflect. What does that mean for my life? What does that mean for my marriage? What does that mean for my children or my grandchildren? Um, I, I need, I need to, to, when God speaks, I need to take it in and put it, make it edible. Make it edible for my life. Okay. And here's the third thing that you need to be aware of is watch your reaction. You say reaction to what? Everything. Um, what comes in the mail? text you get, the, anything that's a challenge to you. It's important how you react. When I was in uh, Bible college, someone said something that I understood, but I didn't understand how important it was. They said, uh, when you're measure, they said, if you want to be mature, one of the quickest ways to measure your maturity is measure the length of time that exists between something disagreeable happening and you beginning to praise God with all of your heart. I understood that, but God, what, uh, what this great pastor was teaching me is that you're going to have disappointments, you're going to have setbacks, you're going to get bad news and God's going to have to help you through those things. And there are courses of action. He wasn't talking about ignoring things, but he said, when the bad thing happens, when you get the news, when you get the letter, you get the doctor report or whatever it is, how long before you start praising God with all of your heart that he's in control and that he is bigger than the problem. You don't have to cave into the problem. But how long does your despair, does it take for your despair to turn to delight? And I thought, man. Well, sometimes it took a few seconds. Okay. Gators lost a football game. That was despair. But I'd, I'd get over it by the end of the day. In fact, right when I first came here, the Gators were on track to become national champions. And they lost a game they shouldn't have lost. And you know what I did? I was in a funk for several days. I don't remember how long it was. I was like, ugh, ugh. Lord Spurrier couldn't even pull this off, you know. You know what? I made a decision that I never told anybody about this because I was afraid I wouldn't keep it. But I, I made a decision after that. I said, I am never going to let a sporting event dictate my life. And if we lose, we lose. And right now I'm going through an era where God is putting that to the test almost every week, you know. <laughs> See, I pastor churches, and this church is not one of them. I mean, we've got a rivalry, Clemson, South Carolina. We have an intense rivalry. But I want to tell you, I pastored in states where the rivalry was so intense. I knew some Sundays I rode off because if Alabama lost, the, the, the message was pointless. Nobody was going to listen to that. 
I mean, I'm, I'm serious. When, if Alabama lost, it was over. Just go ahead, do the formalities, receive the offering, come back next week. But, but I, I tell you, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is there's things that are silly like that, like a game. But there are things that, how long does it take for me to move from... Uh, to praise God. He is faithful. He is Lord. And I'm not talking about just a positive confession. But loved ones, a biblical worldview understands that God really is in charge of it all. And I want to tell you, I, I, that's one of the things I do regularly. When I get something that's disappointing or something that hurts, or something, I, I, I watch. How long, how long before I can start rejoicing? How long before I can start rejoicing? Sometimes it's right away, and I'm so proud of myself. I'll go into Justin and Corey's office, try to tell them how good I just did, because it just took seconds. Then there are other times it takes, takes a few minutes or a few hours. Let me tell you something. I've got some that have gone into years now. And I'm still waiting to rejoice. You say, you, you, you haven't thanked God for it? Yeah, but it's kind of a hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Justin was with me chasing loose chickens one time. <laughs> and I had to hop over a fence like I did when I was a young man. And I realized as I was getting to the top of the fence, I may go down on that side or I may go down on this side. <laughs> Justin said, uh, I must have been in my early 40s. Justin said, Pastor, I'm impressed. You, you jumped that fence like a young man, put your hand on it and just came over. I was impressed. You did it. And I looked at him and I said, barely. <laughs> barely. Some of my rejoicing is barely. Some of your rejoicing is probably barely. Sometimes we fall into the trap of if God loved me, he would have never let this happen. But let me tell you what all of that stuff is designed to do. It's designed to root you in a biblical world view that knows God is in control. It's all right to have your stance of faith. It's all right to have a plan. It's all right to say, well, this is what we're going to Sometimes it's all right to fight. Sometimes you got to be like the ermine. I am not going to besmirch my life. I'll go down fighting, but I'm not going to compromise what I believe. That's okay. Sometimes you have to say, our God is able to deliver out of this trap you have set, Nebuchadnezzar. And we believe that he will. We know he can, and I believe he will. But sometimes there's that period where you have to say, but if not, see, I've said this a couple of times a year for 28 years now. We all need strong faith, but we all also need an if not. And it's not because God is weak. It's not because God 
can't. It's not because the enemy might overcome sometimes. No. It's because God works in ways that are above our ways. So a biblical worldview says God is going to help me in this. I, I, I know that he's able and I believe that he will. But if not, I'm going to praise him. I'm going to rejoice. They said, if not, we know God is able and we believe that he will. But if he doesn't, we will not go your route. And loved ones, sometimes that's the way a biblical worldview works. What did Paul say to those early Christians? He said, you celebrated the confiscation of your property. Now, did that mean we ought to celebrate someone taking everything we've got? Does that mean we ought to celebrate unfair tax codes? Or does that mean we ought to celebrate injustice? No. But they knew. They knew that we don't take our progress reports from this world. God wins. And he wins all the time. I want to say it one more time. God wins. And he wins every time. But our problem is that we live in this present time. Justin, can you give me the little flyer? I didn't bring one up. We gave it to you again because we told you to put it on your refrigerator last week and you read it and got mad and threw it away. So we got you another one. Max Lucado, you will get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. Now I got to say, sometimes it is painless. Sometimes it is quick. But he says it won't be painless, it won't be quick, but God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you'll get through this. Loved ones, I want to tell you, we're going to get through it. Doesn't mean we're not going to go by way of the grave, but we'll get through it. Doesn't mean we might not lose some things but we'll get through it. That's the nature of this present time. But as we learn the joys and the sorrow, as we learn the victories and what appears to be defeats of this present time, we're going to learn that this fight is fixed. This fight is fixed. You say, well, God's in just, God's struggling. If he's God, why doesn't he, you know, why doesn't he do something? Well, just remember Jacob's life. He's wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord says, let me go. Jacob says, nope, 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 nope. You ain't going. No, 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 no. And God's got to teach a very valuable lesson to him. And God didn't call for legion of angels to come help him in the wrestling match. He just reaches down. Touches him on the hip. And in a second, Jacob goes from wrestling to resting. He goes from wrestling to holding on. I want to tell you, every time I felt like I was going down, I've got to give testimony. I don't know what I'll face tomorrow, but every time I've thought I was going down, every time I thought God was losing, every time... 
Just one touch. One touch. And I found myself being upheld. He says, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. That's an image of falling. That's an image of going down. But underneath are the everlasting arms. I'm sorry. I just want to ramble now, but I won't. we got to go. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that you're going to give us revelation. Thank you that you are going to give us opportunity for reflection. And thank you you're going to teach us to be the controllers of our reactions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are becoming persuaded that neither life nor death, things present, things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. As we end this service, we ask you to bless us and keep us. Let your face shine upon us. May the smile of the Lord look upon us and give us your favor, your peace, and your rest. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think because his mighty power is working in us. Loved ones, this is what we want to do. If you're in Brown Chapel, if you're here in the sanctuary and you want prayer, we'll have ministry teams up here available for you. You may want to either where you're sitting or just come up front and find a place to pray and just pour your heart out to him. Uh, those of you that are listening by live stream, maybe you can do that at home. But if there's anyone in the temp- temple, the, um, what's this place? Sanctuary or Brown Chapel or online that wants to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you'll come to one of the ministry team, if you're here, if you're online, there's a number on your screen you can call and someone would be ready, ready to pray for you. Father, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. And we're going to get through this present time. Amen. Amen.